Welcome to Trib Talk. I'm Jennifer Napier Pierce with the Salt Lake Tribune. Utah's Amendment 3 on trial this morning as a three-judge panel hears arguments from the state in support of Utah's gay marriage ban as well as from plaintiffs pushing for marriage equality. The Utah case is the first to be heard by several appeals courts taking up gay marriage cases across the nation and today on the program we're getting an eyewitness account of the proceedings from the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals. Joining me on the Google Hangout is Tribune reporter Brooke Adams. She was in the courtroom this morning and she joins us live from Denver. Brooke, thanks so much for making this happen. You're welcome. <clears throat> also with us, former Utah Supreme Court Chief Justice Michael Zimmerman. He's a partner with the appellate law firm of Zimmerman, Jones & Boer and he filed an amicus brief in the case and he's joining us from his office in Salt Lake City. And uh, Mr. Zimmerman, thank you so much for your time today as well. Nice to see you, Brooke and Jennifer. And you're welcome to join us if you've got questions about the arguments made, the atmosphere in Denver, or the legal process going forward. You can send your thoughts to the hashtag TribTalk on Twitter and Google+. You can put them in the comment section of our page at sltrib.com, or you can send us a text, and that number is 801-609-8059. Uh, Brooke, before we get to the arguments uh, that were presented today, set the scene for us. What was it like in the courtroom? Well, it was the packed courtroom. Um, the in the with the plaintiffs' attorneys were all of the couples that are part of the lawsuit here in Utah. All three couples were there. Um, Peggy Tomzik's wife and son were there. And on the other side of the courtroom, you had Utah's Attorney General Sean Reyes, all three of the attorneys that are helping the state defend Amendment Three. Um, in, there were two rows packed elbow to elbow of media trying to type on their laptops in the courtroom. All the other seats were taken and it seemed to be, as another reporter told to me, uh, you know, a pro-gay marriage audience basically I would say. I did notice in the audience um, Utah, <coughs> I can't remember if he's a senator or representative right now, but LeVar Christensen, it's interesting that he chose to be there since he was the sponsor of Amendment 3 back in 2004. Okay, just to remind the audience, the players in this legal drama, uh, Gene Scher, he was the representing the state's interest in support of Amendment 3, and then you mentioned uh, the plaintiff's attorney, Peggy Thompson, right, Peggy Thompson uh, right. representing the three gay couples from Utah. Can we sort of work through the arguments as they were presented? What did Peggy Thompson have to say? First. Well, let me set it in order here. Um, so the state got to go first. So Gene Scher addressed the three judges on the panel first. And he just barely started to get going when Judge Holm, Jerome Holm, who is African American, began questioning him about um, the Loving versus Virginia 1967 Supreme Court ruling that ended the ban on interracial marriage. And he repeatedly asked over and over, why is this any different? And, um, you know, I would have to say uh, Mr. Scher didn't really get anywhere with, with his response to that. And the judge home kept saying, how is this any different, uh, you know, from loving versus Virginia when you have a man who wants to marry another man? Why is that any different than loving? Uh, I, maybe we can just insert Michael Zimmerman's perspective here. I mean, when you hear that, is that one of the, the, the big questions in this case, the comparison between gay marriage and interracial marriage, which, of course, the Supreme Court said you cannot prevent? Right. Well, you know, the, uh, I think whenever people talk about gay marriage, 
they always talk about loving. In other words, the ban on interracial marriage, why is that any different? The state's argument is that, well, that was a, a ban directed at a race, but it was still heterosexual marriage. And the state's argument is that when the heterosexual marriage is the traditional, you know, ancient meaning of the term, and the fact that you're limiting some category of men or women from getting married based on race or some other category is different than changing the definition of marriage to simply be two people who love each other and want to enter into that the legal uh, and social obligations that come with marriage. So that's the distinction that the state would make and of course what Judge Holmes said is exactly what the plaintiff's arguments are which is it's you can also view loving as about an individual's right to choose the person with whom they want to declare themselves to be a couple. And if you take that perspective on it, it isn't about race, it's about individual freedom. Right. And I might chime in here. Mr. Scherer, what he said finally in response to that question was that in loving the Supreme Court found that the miscegenation statute was designed to maintain white supremacy, you know, white power. And so he did draw that distinction that um, that this was about, that, that it didn't change the definition of marriage being between a man and a woman. So I will just add to that. The vulnerability uh, in that argument is that is that loving it was designed to demean African Americans to keep race separate and the argument here is this amendment 3 was designed to demean non-heterosexuals. Okay uh, so so Brooke, uh, share did he recover? What was his next point? Yeah and then at that point um, the judge Carlos Lucero chimed in too asking him well didn't all in all of those decisions and other decisions related to marriage didn't it, um, the Supreme Court find it was a fundamental right you know can we agree that marriage is a fundamental right and Mr. Scher said yes we can and then uh, Mr. L uh, Judge Lucero said but you're arguing that marriage is um, not a fundamental right for same-sex couples and um, so he then had to go down that line and he again reiterated this point that the presumption in loving was that man-woman marriage was a fundamental right and it was designed to promote cro uh, procreation and maintaining the human race is what he said. Hmm. Uh, so let me think here. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, he then began to sort of emphasize the state's point about um, marriage between a man and a woman being about a child-centric view of marriage you know versus an adult-centric view that he believes is at the heart of same-sex marriage. I'm gonna have to cough so I'm gonna have to turn away here. That's okay, second. that's okay. <laughs> uh, Brooke Adams joining us from Denver where she's been uh, uh, reporting on the Tenth Circuit arguments in the Amendment 3 uh, same-sex marriage ban case. Also with this former uh, Utah Supreme Court Chief Justice uh, Michael Zimmerman who uh, filed a uh, an amicus brief in that case. And uh, again, you're welcome to join us. If you've got uh, thoughts or questions, you can send them to the hashtag TribTalk on Twitter and Google+, or put them in the comments section right here at sltrib.com. You can also send us a text, and that number is on your screen, 801-609-8059. Um, 
uh, here's, here's a comment from Harold the Cat. If the idea for marriage is framed around what's best for children, then why does society allow awful marriages to take place among heterosexuals? Uh, Utah 101 comments, uh, I hope you can answer this, that uh, the article in uh, the newspaper says that judges appear split, and yet the main concern for the judge siding with the state was one of states' rights. Uh, joining us now, it looks like uh, Marissa Lang is joining us. She's also Hi. a Salt Lake Tribune reporter who was in the courtroom. Um, we've been sort of walking through the arguments that the state presented. Um, Jean Sher, the the chief legal counsel who was uh, presenting the state's case, did uh, did the Judges have concerns about the state's rights angle of, uh, of the state's argument. Uh, the Judge Lucero, who, who questioned uh, Mr. Scherer most extensively about the state's rights issue, pointed to um, the decision in the Defense of Marriage Act, the Windsor decision that the U.S. Supreme Court ruled on, in saying that essentially that decision stated that no state law, although states do have the right to define marriage as they see fit, no state law can um, overpower or uh, supersede the fundamental rights of individuals as guaranteed by the U.S. Constitution. So that was the main criticism lobbed out to the state. But um, Mr. Scher did contend that although Windsor does declare that, um, it does also say that states have the right to define marriage how they believe it should be defined. In the case of Windsor, um, New York State had decided that they were going to allow same-sex marriages and honor gay unions as equal to heterosexual marriages, um, but it was unable to provide those people and those couples with the same rights because of DOMA. So the state responded by saying, well, yes, but um, Windsor didn't say that states would not be able to define this as we see fit in Utah, um, according to uh, the the attorney general's office and the governor, um, is defining marriage as a union between a man and a woman. Mm. So uh, we've got the um, concerns around loving, the interracial marriage court ruling. We've got concerns about the state's rights. What else was Cher hammered on from the judges? Um, those were the two uh, major ones that they really, really uh, stuck to. Um, they also questioned uh, his use of certain uh, social studies about uh, the result of children being raised in a heterosexual family with a mom and a dad versus children who are being reared by two parents perhaps of the same gender. Um, there are several social studies that the state has used to, to point to the benefits of children being raised in a home um, with a mother and a father and that did come up today although the state has also backed off a little bit from some of those claims um, as was evidenced by a letter that they submitted to the court last night and I know Brooke wrote a story about that that you can take a look at. Hmm. Uh, Michael Zimmerman, uh, I know this is a bit like reading tea leaves because we are uh, at a disadvantage here. We don't have the transcripts of what happened. We're relying on eyewitness accounts. But from what you've heard, um, is there any impressions or um, uh, anything strike you as, as poignant or unusual uh, as a former jurist? Uh, what do you think? Well, you know, uh, guessing, like you say, reading tea leaves is a very challenging thing to do. Um, but, and, and I'm always hesitant to categorize judges based on their, their, you know, religious ethnic characteristics, but the fact that an African-American judge who 
is not very old. I think he graduated from law school in the 80s. Um, you know, is is picking up on loving and hammering somebody about loving. Um, you can see loving as about racial discrimination, but you can also see loving as about, you know, what is the difference in terms of the animus of those who passed the miscegenation statute in Virginia that was declared unconstitutional and the animus that motivated those who starting in 1977 changed Utah's statutes to make it impossible for uh, gay couples to adopt, uh, do surrogacy, all these sorts of things. The state, I think, has tried to argue, well, there's no evidence of animus, you know, individual specific bigotry uh, that motivates this, but the Supreme Court in, in uh, going back to the case of Romer, when they struck down Colorado's statute banning gay marriage, the Supreme Court didn't say you have to actually show bigotry. They said if you look at all the circumstances and the rationales offered for this act, are there any of them that stand up? And if they don't, you can impute animus. You can say this was only done to denigrate these people. And I think, I think, in fairness, you look at the legislative history, you look at all the things that have gone on since the 70s, trying to make gay marriage or civil unions impossible and to burden anybody who actually engages one. And I think you have to say it's the same mentality, the same sentiment. It's hostility towards gays. And I might chime in on that point if I could. Um, so Judge Kelly specifically went after Peggy Tomsick, the attorney for the plaintiffs, on that point, asking her, "Where's the animus? Where's the animus? Show me." You know, there's no animus here, and she acknowledged that in Judge Shelby's ruling that he said he could not impute from the passage of the law that everybody who voted for it or all the lawmakers who voted for it had animus against gays and lesbians. So he really tried, he was very testy about that point in questioning um, Peggy Tomsek. And <clears throat> I might point out maybe a couple other interesting issues that were brought up. Absolutely. Um, Judge, yeah, okay, Judge Holm um, kept asking about jurisdiction, like were the right people sued here and his point is he asked a lot about why the county clerk which initially was a party in this lawsuit but fell away you know so asking the plaintiffs attorney did you sue the right people in essence why aren't they here so she had to clarify for him that the Utah Attorney General and the governor had directed the county clerks um, on what they could do in the wake of Shelby's ruling and so she she explained to him um, we sue the parties here because they are directing the action of the state agencies and the county clerks in the state. Um, that was an interesting point. Another point was that Judge Lucero really went after um, the harm, uh, what happens to children of same-sex couples, you know, and pounded sort of um, Jean Cher on the point that, you know, well, what about their children? You know, you're, you say your marriage is all about um, a child-centric view and the best interest, but aren't you harming these children? And he referred to the commentary in Windsor on that point. 
and he also brought up, made a lot of points about out-of-state couples, or couples who had married in other states and then came to Utah, as did um, Kate Call and Karen Archer, or Karen Archer and Kate Call, sorry, um, the plaintiffs in this case. Um, they were married in Iowa but moved to Utah and their laws aren't recognized. And he kept asking, how can you do that? Aren't you? So a couple interesting points there. Mm. Uh, it sounds like there was some uh, vigorous debate, some vigorous questioning on the part of the, the jurists. And uh, Michael Zimmerman, does that indicate anything, that sort of aggressive, um, I assume it means they're taking this case very seriously? Um, I would say they're certainly going to take this case seriously just from the objective factors. When people ask questions, sometimes it's just personality driven. Sometimes there are people that don't ask questions like Justice Thomas never asked questions at the US Supreme Court and other people like Scalia can't seem to stop asking questions. Um, so I think my understanding from people I've talked to is Judge Lucero is always asking a lot of questions but I think the vigorous participation of Judge Holmes here is particularly interesting for some of the reasons I mentioned. I mean, it strikes me that he could well be the swing person here. I, I'll tell you that was the you know view of the peanut gallery, the journalists in the audience, that it appeared like it might be, you know, Judge Kelly on the state side, Judge Lucero clearly on the side of the plaintiffs, and that Judge Holmes is going to be the swing here. Hmm. Uh, just a, a few other comments. Uh, let's see. Uh, high tech. If uh, if an opposite sex household is the only healthy way to raise a child, will the state follow up on this and propose legislation to remove children from same sex households to be placed in a more suitable family? Um, Bruce Munson uh, on Twitter was Utah stopping adoptions yesterday by a gay couple brought up today in the arguments. Uh, Brooke, um, refresh our memory. So the, the, there are couples who, um, during that window of time, they got married. They already have a, a child, so they wanted to formally get a birth certificate. The state of Utah's Department of Health said, "No, we're not touching this," um, which violates a, a judge judge's order. Uh, was that? brought up in uh, the arguments today at all? Not <clears throat> directly, although you know there were a lot of questions about the state, uh, about children, and about what the state is doing. So I almost got the sense sitting there that maybe they are aware that that is also happening in Utah would be my take on it. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so you know I think that's a very complicated case. What you have in Utah is there are some same-sex couples who were married they filed adoption petitions before the U.S. Supreme Court granted a stay, you know, preventing any more marriages. The state said it was going to freeze everything at that whatever point you were at. But we've had, I think, from what I can tell, two to three judges who have gone ahead and approved second parent adoptions for gay couples. And yet then when they went to the vital Office of Vital Records and Statistics to get an amended birth certificate, certificate listing both parents they were denied and the state has now filed um, petitions in the Utah Court of Appeals um, asking them to to put a stay on these judges orders and to hold a hearing about whether they had the authority whether that was an abuse, abuse of their discretion uh, given that Amendment 3 is now in place to go ahead and approve those adoptions so that's a very sticky issue mm -hmm. you have the state now going after state judges and you know well, the that will play out here. Part is it's bringing the Utah judiciary into this. The 
has been everybody's been avoiding bringing this before the Utah Supreme Court it seems to me but now this issue is going to be running up through the state judiciary uh, Michael Zimmerman I mean as a as a former jurist yourself what do you think are the strongest arguments on both sides obviously you are you you filed a friend of the court brief um, with the plaintiffs but what do you think the, did the from what we've heard did both sides present um, as strong a case as they could I think I think they did I think the I think the state's strongest case is that there are passages in the Windsor case that clearly talk about the traditional power of states to define marriage that goes back before the, the Constitution that um, that in the Windsor case New York as Brooke observed had changed its law and recognized same-sex marriage and the Supreme Court in Windsor talks about how the state had debated the question and made a decision to extend the privilege of marriage to gay people and the federal government was then restricting that and pulling back on what the state had chosen to do Utah of course is the flip Utah has refused to extend that privilege farther and the state's strongest argument I think is to say Windsor left some holes where it's possible the Supreme Court could just retreat into that federalism hole and say this is an area for the state this is not a case where the state has chosen to expand the right and the federal government's shrinking it this is a case where the state has kept it shrunk and you need to look to the US Constitution to expand it in an area that traditionally has been left to the states exclusively so it is a it's a groundbreaking move and I think that's the strongest position for the state because when you analyze a state measure like this there's usually a very low level of rationality required now for on the other hand I think that's basically where the state has to dig itself a hole in the ground and say this is my bunker because they don't have much else their other rationales are pretty weak scientifically and uh, sociologically um, on the other hand go ahead Brooke I'm sorry oh no keep going but I think as far as the plaintiffs are concerned they are really grounding it in in the Supreme Court's case in Romer in the in the case of Lawrence which uh, struck down Texas sodomy statute and in DOMA there's a lot of language in DOMA in the uh, Windsor case I'm sorry that that says states have autonomy in this area but they have to observe constitutional protections but and those little buts are big enough to drive a truck through if the court chooses to do so so I think the Tenth Circuit is going to be trying to predict what the Supreme Court's going to do at one level and at another level it probably just has to read those three or four cases Lawrence Romer and Windsor and say boy this train sure looks like it's going in one direction awfully fast mm. uh, and that direction is to recognize same-sex marriage
Right. And, yeah, and your point about um, that there are bounds set under, you know, states do have the right to regulate, but there are bounds and corners um, under the Constitution was brought up by several of the judges as well as Peggy Tomsick. I'll, I'll give you one twist here. Um, a comment was brought up, I think, by Judge Kelly. Um, well, should we send this back to the court and have a trial? Would a trial help us fix this and figure this out, uh, particularly on the social science issue? And Peggy Tomsick answered that question and said, no, <laughs> that wouldn't help, that those issues were sorted out already, you know, in Windsor and in uh, some of the other cases that have happened across the country, and there's no need for, to have a trial on this issue that's played out in Prop 8 and Windsor, et cetera. Uh, Michael Zimmerman, I mean, what does your gut tell you on that? <laughs> Is there a well, chance that they could send it back to the district court level? Well, you know, the judge, I think Wisconsin, the judge last week or the week before, did hold a trial. And he did examine the, the sociological evidence, and there's basically one study that the state has relied on um, by this, uh, I forget the fellow's name right Regenerous. now. Regenerous. Regenerous. Yeah, Regenerous. And... Uh, um, he basically found that it was cooked data, that, that there was no study of same-sex marriage. It was all studying uh, single parents, step-parents, and that sort of thing, because he was opining that children raised in same-sex marriages fared less well than children in heterosexual marriages. But the, the Wisconsin judge held a trial, looked into the evidence, looked at the the testimony and said this is just this is worthless well it's interesting that the state last night files with the court a letter withdrawing its reliance on that very report so there really is not much that the state could argue is a fact question anymore in other words that's about all they have empirically that they're relying on and none of these other cases have had full trials They've all been decided basically on legal issues, sociological studies. We've only got a couple minutes, Brooke. I know you need to run to the airport. So um, give us the reaction after the hearings. Each, each side had roughly 30 minutes. Uh, what happened after the fact, both in the courtroom and on the steps of the court? Oh, well, in the courtroom, we all rushed out, basically, so <laughs> there wasn't much there. Uh, but out, outside the courthouse, uh, first Peggy Tomsick addressed the media and shared her view, which she felt very good about it, um, about uh, her presentation and, and what the judges asked about. Um, and then each of the plaintiffs um, spoke, you know, one person from each couple spoke and addressed the media. Um, Derek Kitchen shared the conversation he had with uh, Mr. Reyes just before the hearing got underway. That's I think Utah, we mentioned uh, Attorney General Sean Reyes, right? Who said to him, "You know, I'm sorry. I know this is a difficult situation for you, and I, I acknowledge that, and I'm sorry for that um, for you and your families." Um, and then after that, Mr. Reyes came, the Attorney General of Utah, and addressed um, the media. And he said he didn't want to talk about any of the substance of the arguments that were made in court, but he too felt very very good about the presentation that was given to the judges. Hmm. The conventional wisdom, of course, is that this is just another step on the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Michael Zimmerman, is that uh, what you think, too? Uh, I don't see how they conduct it, given how many, how many courts in so many different jurisdictions have decided this issue this way. So it's going to go up through several circuits. 
and it's I suppose it's possible they could wait till there was a conflict among the circuits but that seems it seems a reach because that would just basically be letting them back off and let the circuit courts read Windsor as they want I think I think they're gonna have to take it which one they take is hard to know and I think what they do they could also hide under this federalism argument if they wanted to to avoid like a Roe v. Wade issue for themselves which is getting ahead of the populist but it's not clear to me that this isn't moving so fast that uh, I don't know where the populace is. Where, where we've done a lot of reporting is just in the, the personal stories and the, the legal limbo that so many families find themselves in. Um, do you sense, do you have a, a, any inclination of what the court, I mean, do they feel urgency to, to sort of get these questions answered? Um, because they're not on any strict timetable, uh, as I understand it. Uh, Michael, well, I, I think... Uh, if you're looking at the US Supreme Court which is really this is going to be right in their lap uh, these are probably the kinds of issues they'd love not to have to decide but they have decided between Romer and Lawrence and and Windsor they have they have started to lay down as I said some trackage and uh, it's kind of invited these decisions by all these district courts they've all gone the same way that our judge did and the Supreme Court's going to either have to say, no, we didn't mean what it looks like we said, or they're going to have to say yes. And it's interesting that the public has actually, it's probably, is it less than 10 states now, where political decisions were made to legalize gay marriage, and the other states, it's all been courts, federal courts. Mm -hmm. so so, Brooke, did that timetable question come up at all in the arguments, or did the they make a a plea asking for the court to, to proceed quickly. No, they the um, Tenth Circuit has promised to do this on an expedited basis, which they did in holding this hearing so quickly. Um, some reporters who are more familiar with their time frame told me that you know typically it would be like I think they said six to eight months, and then somebody said um, three to six months for a decision. But I did have one. Um, attorney who was from Utah there as an observer tell me that he thought they might make a, a decision as soon as May, end of May. Um, so anywhere from six weeks from now to eight months from now I guess is a time frame. <laughs> well we'll all be watching this very closely. Brooke Adams, Michael Zimmerman, thank you both very much for your time thank today. You. You're welcome. Thank Bye. And of Bye. course, continuing coverage of same-sex marriage in Utah right here at sltrib.com. I'm Jennifer Napier-Pierce with the Salt Lake Tribune. Thanks for joining us for Trib Talk today. We'll see you next time.